Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to the Christmas edition of Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Khan. Well, and I'm Drew Beecham, a.k.a. Bah Humbug. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, I love that music. I'm boogieing down. (laughs) Well, good. At least one of us can. And maybe you're wearing your Santa hat and dancing around glasses of BVIPA. If you haven't watched Pico Brew's ad, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, God help us all. Anyway, <laughs> together we are the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly a 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. All right, and on today's episode, we are going to get a little bit of feedback Head into the pub and talk a couple pieces of beer news because, hey, beer always has news. And then we're going to go to the lab and we're going to talk about, well, brewery's brand new public enemy number one. Where does it come from and just how do you deal with it? Before we actually launch into something different this week, where, well, we're going to go back and visit some of those Q&A segments that we've talked in the past and bring you some goldie oldies from the past two years of Experimental Brewing's question and answering period. That's right. We dug deep into the archives, uh, picked out some of uh, our favorite questions that we got from people, and uh, we didn't pay any attention to if we actually answered them correctly or not. I was going to ask, well, let's see if our answers hold up in this modern age of new information. And then, of course, we'll give you something other than beer before we close out and get you on your merry, merry, merry beery way. But before we get into doing all of that... We want you to listen to a word from some of the people that make this show possible, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support.
thank you so much for sticking around. We're back, and we're going to get going on things here now. But first, Drew has a few announcements. Well, we all have announcements, but some beery announcements. So if you haven't paid attention, last week's episode was actually episode 25 of The Brew Files. That means we're actually one episode shy of a full year. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Uh, Double the Juice with Mike. Uh, Mike Tonsmeyer and I sat down and we talked about just how you go about getting two very differently juicy, juicy, juicy uh, You think I'm going to react beers. to that, man? No. One no, I'm, I'm just sitting here. I know. I know you're twitching. I can, I can hear it. No, that's okay. I've gotten over that. <laughs> But yeah, a really great episode talking about just how do we uh, get multiple batches of beer, something I think we're going to do some more exploration on in the future, because, hey, who wants 10 gallons of the same beer when you can get five gallons of different beer twice over? (laughs) Yeah, really. And uh, also, we want to remind you about our new affiliate sponsor, brewswag.com. Let me say that again, brewswag.com. Uh, they are running this great deal. If you go there and enter the code experimental at checkout, they'll give you seven and a half percent off and they'll match that seven and a half percent as a donation to our charity, which we're getting to right about now, huh? Well, hey, before we get to the charity though, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Our charitable cause for right now is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, which helps fund the care and treatment of pediatric cancer. I mean, it just can't get a whole lot better than that. So remember, uh, when you go and you make an order at BruceWag.com, they will kick in some money for uh, Axel's Angels. And... It's just about the end of the year, so that means that it's just about time to start a new charity. We would like your suggestions. If you guys have any ideas for a great charity that uh, you think everybody could get behind, send them on in, and we'll put them in the bag when we're looking for a new charity to support starting after the first of the year. There you go. You've got less than two weeks in order to get your final donation in for Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation. So do us a favor, give a buck. That's right. right, And hey, by the way, if you have been hearing rumblings about any sort of weird stuff about Patreon and changes to fee structures, don't worry about it. They changed their minds. Everything's good. Oh, cool. So hey, I think we should get to some feedback. Let's do that. Why don't you take this one? All right. So uh, Chino, aka Sachin over at Reddit, he dropped me a line to basically say, hey, I just got done listening to episode 54, where you gave the quick tip about pushing beer with CO2. While I appreciate that we homebrewers are supposed to all be adults, that you gave a disclaimer in an attempt to limit your liability, and you suggested putting the glass of carboy in a wooden box, I believe you could have approached the topic even more responsibly. Everyone has screwed up CO2 pressure at some point or another. For example, I started to close sterile siphoning into a purged keg, but forgot my keg was under pressure and ended up resuspending all my trube as the CO2 escaped into the carboy. I'm just glad it was a PAT carboy. Maybe you could have suggested that all brewers use a simple and cheap DIY bulldog when they do this, or at least glass fermenter brewers should do so, ferment in a corny instead, or avoid this technique. You should build one too as an example to others, and for personal safety, the parts for a DIY bulldog are probably less than 30 bucks. I would hate to see even one person seriously injured while trying to emulate their homebrew heroes and then making an oversight error. 
If you decide to update your quick tip, maybe you could post instructions for making a DIY bulldog on your site. Cheers, Chino. Chino's right. Uh, if you don't know what a bulldog is, bulldog is really actually from the racking of barrels. It's basically a plug that you can then jam into the hole of a barrel and add CO2 pressure on one side and then rack out on the other side. And the idea is that the bulldog is loose enough that if you overpressurize, the pressure will escape via the bulldog and not via, you know, exploding the barrel. Some bulldogs are even fancier. They have uh, actual pressure relief valves in them so that if you exceed a certain level, it doesn't actually depend upon the mechanical advantage of the bung coming out as much as the valve releasing. I don't have a PRV on my setup. I use a standard carboy cap and I make sure that the carboy caps are not super snug. And then when I do mine, I actually run it under three PSI. And a couple of times that I have screwed up because to uh, Chino's point, we all screw up. It's inevitable. We are human beings. The cap will actually pop off the top and act as a PRV. So, yes, if you wanted to be absolutely 100% perfectly safe, get a PRV on there and make sure it works. Uh, but instead, I just use the carboy cap that's designed to come off uh, a little bit looser and faster. Okay, man. I guess that's about it for here, huh? Yep. Beer time! Beer time! We're going to head over to the pub, have a beer, and uh, talk about some news in the beer life. So stick around, we're going to be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. sitting in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town north pole hmm? and we're drinking a couple beers what are you having today drew well you know every once in a while your local brewery decides to go play around with things and change things up well uh, one of the original founding la craft breweries at least in this current generation of craft breweries that we have is my good friends over at eagle rock brewing company and one of their initial launch beers was a pale ale that they called revolution a really pale ale with you know, kind of that West Coast model of almost no pale pale malt, uh, kind of a session IPA without that actual name, and they've had wow. that going now for like the eight years uh, that they've been open, and they just started to rejigger it and they turned it into a new th- series, the thirty fifty six uh, series, which is going to explore all sorts of different hop combinations, and they just released the first one, which involves kind of an old school combination of Simcoe and Centennial. And you know what? The way they changed it up and, and refreshed the beer, the, the whole re-revolutionized the revolution, so to speak, it's tasty. It's just one of those beers comes in at like 5% and you can just keep drinking it and have a good time with it. Simcoe and Centennial are a great blend of hops too, man. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's funny to think that that's now classic. I mean, I remember when Simcoe came in the market, but it's classic now and it's classic yep. for a reason. Well, I am having a shoof nice today 
because uh, I just happened to see that they had it here, and it has been years since I've had one of those. It's uh, basically kind of like your your standard uh, shoof, except it's got a touch of time to it, and there's a, a couple other things going on here, but it's a really, really nice, refreshing beer. The time is not overdone. It adds to it. It doesn't dominate the beer, and, you know... This is this is one of those beers that I would love to have all year round, except that then it wouldn't be special. So I'm taking advantage of it while it's here. Kind of like Sierra Nevada Celebration in that aspect, right? Yeah, yep, exactly, exactly. I would love to have Celebration around all the time, but then I wouldn't have anything to look forward to at Christmas. Yeah. Well, Nishuf and, and all the Schuf beers, or at least all the ones I've had, are always really nicely done. Excellent stuff. I love it, and... Uh, I'll, I'll take one anytime I can get one. Yeah, all right. Now, hey, let's talk some beer news while we're drinking these beers so that we can keep ourselves okay. from being bored by staring at each other's faces. So I think one of the things that we have to talk about is uh, the ABI High End, right? You know, High End is their collection of the 11 craft breweries and cideries that they have in their portfolio. They announced a brand new program that they call the Elevate Program. I always love that sort of terminology. But the Elevate Program, they say... From their uh, CEO, or, or sorry, from their president, uh, Felipe, says, uh, Elevate is our way of forging a new collaborative path forward for the entire industry. And it entails that they're going to start from the 11 breweries and cideries that they have in, under this umbrella, printing best consumed by dates, uh, so that they can also have those along with the best, uh, or born on type dates that Budweiser does. So that they can make sure that uh, brewers or uh, beer drinkers actually get beer at its freshest. They have also said that they are going to commit to using 100% solar and wind power at all the their facilities, the craft facilities, by 2020. And reducing water usage at those facilities by 20% during that same period of time. Now, that also makes me wonder, as they're starting to move some of their craft beers up to, say, uh, Merrimack in, in New Hampshire, uh, whether or not that's actually also going to fall under that that program there. And then the other one that I thought was interesting was that they are starting a fund that's being actually managed by an independent finance firm, $2 million to give to its craft partners for donation purposes. So that basically they're talking about, hey, here's a $2 million slush fund for all 11 of our partner breweries slash cideries to use to help nonprofits in their local communities. Uh, so... I don't know. What do you think about this, Denny? Well, you know, it's all very well and good. That's that's all great stuff, and I'm glad to see them doing it. But they're doing it, I think, as a distraction so that you don't think about the fact that they're trying to limit your choices to other craft beers. So, you know, it's like good on them for doing all the good stuff, but it doesn't really negate all the not-so-good stuff they're doing. Yeah, well, and of course, I think that's interesting. Some of these things are... Yeah, you know, direct callbacks to other things happening in the craft industry. Like, for instance, the solar power piece puts me very much in mind of Sierra Nevada and New Belgium, you know, who have similar sorts of programs. And the the two million dollar local nonprofit budget uh, thing that they got going on there uh, that makes me think of all the hubbubaloo that happened when Wicked Weed got bought earlier this year, and they had to shut down their festival because everybody's like, "Oh, nope, we're out of here." And they're like, but think of the local nonprofits that we were supporting. So it seems like that's a another way that they're trying to garner some goodwill, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, but you know, 
Whatever, like I said, you know, good stuff is good, but the bad stuff is still there. There you go. So now, what do you guys think out there? Is the Elevate program going to elevate your opinion of the high end and their breweries? Let us know. (laughs) I think I know what the response is going to be, but I'll be really curious to see what people have to say. I agree. But you have to ask because not everybody agrees with us. And so you have a bit of news from California that may affect the rest of us, huh? Well, yeah. So years ago here in California, you know, California tends to be on the bleeding edge of regulation, whether or not you want to consider that a good thing or not. It may depend upon your political bent. But they have, years ago, there was a proposition that was passed. Another thing that California has is direct democracy. Uh, propositions can be signed into law straight from you know, the voters. So one of these propositions that got passed years ago is called Proposition 65. If you've ever spent any time in California in recent years, you'll notice almost every place in the universe that you walk into has a Prop 65 warning up on the wall somewhere. And what that really is, is supposed to be a warning to people about potential cancer-causing chemicals in the particular area or around the manufacturer of certain things. Right. So I used to have an apartment that I lived in drive into the parking garage, somebody put a Prop 65 sign up there because the car exhaust from the cars parked in the parking lot emit cancer-causing chemicals. So a little bit of a mixed bag about the actual impact of that. Now, what does this have to do with beer? Cans are becoming a very popular package, right? Everybody loves them. I love my crawlers that I can get at breweries. I actually trust my crawlers more than I trust you know, any of the growlers I see, I've started home canning beers. If you watched our Instagram feed, you see that I, I put up a picture of one of my cans that I'm going to send to Denny so he can taste. Yeah. Now, the thing is that we look at those cans and we go, oh, hey, you know, look, it's a, an aluminum can. Well, except for the interior of the can is not actually aluminum. The interior of the can is a coating, plastic coating, designed to keep the beer from the aluminum. If you let the beer touch the aluminum, the acidic nature of the beer will actually eat away at the aluminum and it will affect the flavor of the beer. This would be bad. This was the reason why cans were not used for a very, very long time before people started to figure out what you could do. All of the can linings right now, or I should say all of the major can linings that you can get, say, from Ball and the other big can manufacturers, the most common ones, all contain BPA, right, uh, bisphenol A which has been shown to either cause cancer or be a hormone disruptor, a couple of different side effects. How serious you want to take the threat of BPA in the dietary stream, that's up to you. There are some people who are absolutely freaked out about it. There are some people who are like, whatever, I'm not growing anything weird yet. But those can liners in our beers have BPA. Now, manufacturers are working on what they call BPA and I can liners, which are uh, BPA non-intent. They're, I think, up to generation three, which they have a lot of hope will actually be successful for beer. And until that point in time, the California, uh, California state has now actually said, okay, look, I believe it's by the end of this particular year, so December 30th, so 10 days from the time that this episode end, uh, airs, beer cans have to be given a Prop 65 warning unless the beer brand is listed on a particular website that's run by the California Craft Brewers Association. And so that means basically that you have to go and rejigger your cans so you can put a Prop 65 warning on them, label your brewery, etc. And so the BA actually put out a, a blast out there to basically say, hey, uh, guys, make sure unless you want to actually com- have to do all the, the jumping through the hoops to comply with this regulation – Get your beer up here so that you can have it listed so that you don't have to do anything to your labels. 
And then once you switch to the BPA and I uh, canning materials, you'll be able to remove your brands from those, the, those sites and not actually have to carry anything on the cans whatsoever. So it was just a, a big warning that was out there. But why I thought it was interesting was it's basically it applies to any brewery that has, I think it's 10 or more employees, and that also includes part-time employees. So this goes down to a very, very small companies that have to worry about this. To give you an idea of why the BA put this out there, the violation fine for this is up to $2,500 per day per violation. So if you have five brands and cans that are not properly reg- uh, registered or labeled, you could be facing, what is it, $15,000 in fines per uh, No, sorry, $12,500 uh, in fines per day. There you go. That's better, man. Yeah. So that's a lot of money and a lot of worry. So basically the BA is putting out the, the big signal flare out there saying, dude, get your beers registered or get ready to put a warning on there or get ready to switch as soon as you can over to the BPA NI container linings. So I, I just thought it was interesting because I don't think, you know, for most of us, when we're sitting there going, hey, can of beer, we're not thinking about that whole BPA thing. And BPA is very much part of the beer canning industry, and people are starting to try and get around it, and California is attempting to sort of put the gas pedal to the whole uh, motion. Well, you know, I'm I'm no BPA lover for sure, and uh, I think it's it's great to uh, to know what you're ingesting, so I'm I'm all for doing the warning. I'm also not real worried about BPA because I'm a firm believer in the dose makes the poison. And I would have to drink a lot more beer out of cans than I can possibly drink than uh, before I worried about uh, the BPA in them. Oh, yeah. But, you know, hey, Parcelist doesn't know what the, uh, the, the level of toxin is for something like BPA. But regardless, I think it's interesting. I definitely, I know I've had friends of mine who for years have worried about the BPA nature of can linings. So it'll be interesting to see if this actually sort of helps accelerate those Gen 3 uh, linings out there. Yeah, I think that would be great, man. Like I say, you know, the farther away we can get from it, the better. Now we get to revisit territory that we unfortunately have to go to too often, except this one kind of has like a good ending, huh? So yeah, uh, Paradigm Shift Brewing Company over in, I think it's Maslin, Ohio. They had a article that was written up for them in the local newspaper all about, you know, the brand new, you know, brewery and their Maslin's uh, first craft brewery, apparently. So big news, right? And one of the the interviews questions came into, hey, what's the owner's favorite brew so far? Uh, fairly uh, standard sort of question. Uh, right. Except for then the answer came around and it basically caused havoc or a little bit of havoc, minor havoc. Because the answer was the panty dropper. A flavorful toasted coconut cream ale. The name is a joke. I entered it in a amateur brew competitions like that. Okay, a, a pretty Need- bad joke as far as I'm concerned. Well, needless to say, people have caught on to this, and it was like, seriously? Uh, you know, it, this is, again, the same battle that we're fighting again and again, and I think one of the most cogent comments I saw about it was, if you have to explain that the name is a joke... You probably don't want to use the name. <laughs> That's right, man, for well, sure. And I would say that after about you know a day, or actually even less than a day, of sort of minor brouhaha, pun intended, uh, firing up over social media, the uh, brewery owner uh, Michael Malinowski, he actually uh, issued a statement that I thought was actually you know really good. He said, uh, "I would like to say, in the light of the recent feedback, that the name Panty Dropper has now been changed to Tropical Thunder." 
What started out as a fun name for my homebrewing days did not translate over to the mass market. It was not my intention to offend anyone or advocate any type of mistreatment of women in any way. My goal is to be judged on my beer quality and that alone. I do hope that people will give our beers an opportunity to prove that we make a quality product and we will be more aware of social issues when naming our beers in the future. I do apologize if anyone was offended and the name has been struck from all social media outlets. So. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's good. I'm glad that uh, he uh, paid attention to the feedback and did what people were asking him to do. Although I'm a little dismayed that he thought that was a fun name in the first place. Uh, I mean, look, I mean, again, it, it happens with things where things are private jokes between a couple of people or seem like they're silly things when you're just talking amongst friends. Suddenly you hit you know, a broader group of people and people go, wait a second. And you just never realize because you've never put it out there that way. So I, I totally get it. But I, I totally applaud him for sort of paying attention to the fact that people were like, dude, not cool. Yeah, and, and hopefully he's uh, sincere about it. I assume that he is. I'm not going to ascribe any other motive to him. But, uh, you know, again, I just think it's a sad commentary that uh, people think that that's an okay name in the first place. But that's the way I look at things, and not everybody looks at them the same way. Again, though, the needle is shifting where it used to be that if you told people that, the most common response was, hey, screw you, buddy. I'm just having fun here. You know, don't uh, don't get offended. It's a joke. Now people are actually starting to pay attention and go, oh, okay, wait. <laughs> so yeah, I'll take that. That's exactly. progress. Exactly. And that's a good thing. So let's uh, finish up our beers and get out of here and head over to the lab to talk about a new bad thing going on. Oh, yeah. Public enemy number one. That's right. So stick around. We're going to be right back after these messages. Y-Yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over 30 years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham collaborated with Y-Yeast to bring you this quarter's private collection. As the weather starts to cool, some of the world's greatest beer festivals are getting ready to celebrate. Lagers can be the ideal beer for any season, but there's no better time than autumn to brew some of the classics. With their lower fermentation temperatures and accentuated maltiness, our 2002 PC Gambrinus Lager, 2487 PC Hellebach, and 2575 PC Kolsch II will lend ideal variety and complexity through the months to come. Get them October through December 2017. We're sitting here in the lab. The Bunsen burners are going. The Jacob's ladder is buzzing. And we're talking about a problem that has started rearing its ugly head. So if you've been paying attention to the beer news, one thing that we didn't actually talk about in the pub that we actually pulled over here because we wanted to do some more research on it is there was recently a lawsuit that was launched between Left Hand Brewing Company against uh, the use supplier White Labs. 
uh, talking that they were convinced that they were getting contaminated yeast pitches from white labs. Now, thing is, we talk about yeast contamination. You look at the feedback online, and a lot of people going, well, hey, you know, shouldn't left hand have a lab, be able to isolate this sort of stuff? Well, except for this is where it gets into it, kind of a hard thing to track down. Because what their contamination was and what they finally tracked it down to is not like what we would normally think of. It wasn't Britannomyces, it wasn't Lactobacillus or Pediococcus or anything else. It's a variant of Saccharomyces cerevisiae called Saccharomyces diastaticus. Now, diastaticus is a variant of the Cervasia strains, and it's called diastaticus because it's actually variants that can produce their own diastase. Now, it was diastase. We probably, as brewers, you would probably think of this more as uh, alpha amylase and beta amylase. Those are both examples of diastases. They're you know, the things that can convert carbohydrates into sugars and go to town, allow the yeast to go to town. Right, and the, the bottom line with this is that uh, after the beer is packaged, it still continues fermenting in the package, which affects the flavor and can make for some very exciting bottles when you open them. Yeah, almost explosive. Well, and and the, and the reason why they keep fermenting is, so we're used to thinking, you go, you pitch Saccharomyces into a beer that you've mashed, you've created a certain number of sugars, the Saccharomyces goes to town, eats those sugars, and then drops out because it has no more food, right? You know, it gets to a certain point in time where it's done. Well, these yeast strains that are diastaticus types can actually, because they have the diastase in them, they can continue to take longer chain sugars that are left over in the wort, chop them up into simpler sugars, and allow the yeast to kind of rewake and take care of those. Now, it's a very, very slow process. If you look at what Left Hand was uh, talking about and what a couple of other breweries have talked about in the same sort of vein like Mobcraft and Bells, Diastaticus only shows itself in the package after a couple months. So, like two, three months. Not the sort of thing that you'd normally be watching for. Now, a lot of people have said, hey, well, you know, why can't you catch this in the lab? Well, the problem is that Saccharomyces cerevisiae diastaticus looks like Saccharomyces cerevisiae when you put it under a microscope, right? The most common way that people have to detect, hey, I've got something off in my brewery, is to go plate up a sample of the beer and go look at it under the microscope. Lactobacillus, Pediococcus, even Britannomyces look very different. The, the morphology of them look very different from you know, just regular plain Jane Saccharomyces. Well, diastaticus looks exactly the same under the microscope as Saccharom- uh, Saccharomyces. So you can't just do it with the simple tools that most breweries will have. In fact, I think if you look, part of the accusation of the, law, of the lawsuit out there is that even White Labs didn't have an easy way to tell when, stu- when diastaticus was getting into the middle of their pitches, assuming that's the case. And you know, looking at some of the common stuff, it actually takes basically getting in there and looking at the genetic code in order to really tell. There are people who are developing new tests to be able to try and tell the difference. Now, this is a long-lived problem for breweries. Looking online and reading through some papers, diastaticus was first identified and isolated back in the 1940s. It was finally, I think, formally classified and named in the 1960s. And it makes perfect sense, right? Because this is the realm of packaging breweries that are getting beer out there and putting them on the shelves for months. Now, it doesn't affect you if you're serving it over the bar at a pub and you're going to blow through a keg in a month. It's only going to affect you when those bottles are sitting there hanging out for a while. And this also, by the way, explains why a lot of uh, big brewers switched over to doing flash pasteurization because screw it, we got to get rid of it, right? So 
that's all well and good. We also have the other complication that now looks like through some genetic sequencing that people are doing that diastaticus, which is normally something that you would think that we'd want to keep away from the brewery, right? Because of this sort of action, we are actually wholeheartedly inviting into the brewery uh, in the form of some of the yeast strains that we'd like to use. And one of the biggest ones is looks like any of the French Saison strains, any of the ones that are labeled French Saisons, appear to be diastaticus variants. Which means that if you do one of your Saisons and you do it with 3711 or the White Labs equivalent or anybody else's French Saison equivalent, you're bringing diastaticus into your brewery. Now, for us home brewers, if you're not trying to keep your beer around forever, you're not trying to go into bottles that you're going to hold on to for a long time, probably not a problem. Your usual sort of practices will apply. But here's the problem is that we always talk about like with Brett, you know, with Brett, you don't want to, Brett, you need to really make sure you're killing things off because just one or two Brett cells left can slowly reproduce and, and take over and affect the flavor of beer. Same thing's true with diastaticus. So what do you do? How do you get rid of it? Got ideas, Denny? You use a sanitizer that will kill wild yeast, and I got to tell you that that is not star sand. Iota 4 will kill the wild yeast that star sand doesn't. And it just so happens that uh, we have some contacts in the Iota 4 world. So we contacted Jonathan Etley at Craftmeister. Uh, our sponsor. Yes, our sponsor, and the makers of BTF Iota 4. And we asked him about it. He uh, checked in with uh, Dr. Chuck Landman, the uh, founder of the company, and they replied to us, I do agree that yeast cells are not particularly resistant to chemicals. I suspect a 25 part per million iota for solution will do the trick, provided the surface is clean. A soil load could hide a lot of things, and iodophore might not get in contact to do the job. So remember, it has to be clean before it can be sanitized. And uh, Jonathan went on to say that uh, they've contacted uh, the manufacturer that they get uh, some of their iodophore stuff from, and uh, when they hear back from them, they will get back to us with more information in the meantime, though, if you are concerned about diastaticus, probably the best thing you can do is start sanitizing with iodophore, or at least switch back and forth if you're using star sand between it and iodophore. Yeah, and they suggested very particularly that 25 parts per million, which is usually on the higher end of what's recommended for iodophore, you know, that's about one ounce per five gallons. And that would be the sort of recommended way to really make sure that you're killing everything off. Again, assuming that you have everything clean. Right. It, that's about twice the concentration that we normally use for home brewing. Yeah. And now what I think is interesting is that this really gives some extra oomph to those sort of strategies that we've always talked about in the past when people seem to have persistent house characters that are appearing. You know, like those, hey, I'm always getting this sort of weird, funky flavor. Maybe some of that's due to diastatica staying around in the kegs. And if you have that going on, that's part of the reason why the, the usual strategy of, hey, switch your sanitizers around or you know double sanitize with two different chemicals, that actually is probably part of the reason why it works. Yeah, right. And uh, like I said, you know, we're just starting to dive into this, and we will be back talking about it again as we get more information about it. But in the meantime, to protect yourself at home, especially if you're using those French Saison yeasts, try switching uh, sanitizers for a while. Uh you know, use some iota for, uh, keep using the, the star sand if you're using that, but every once in a while, switch it up. Yeah. And I'll also recommend it if you're worried, cause it's not just the French Saison strains. There are other yeast strains that are also, uh, di diastaticus variants. 
go and check the Milk the Funk wiki. Uh, Milk the Funk wikis uh, actually has a list of yeast strains that they presume to be via genetic analysis to be diastaticus. So uh, go and check that out if you're worried about it. But I will tell you the biggest one, the one that probably everybody's using, is going to be the French Saison strains. So right. keep that in mind. Stay safe. And maybe drink your beer fast. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, time to move on to digging into the archives and pulling out some old Q&A stuff. So stick around, and we're going to be right back with that. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth-generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. Alrighty, we are back, and uh, we have pulled out some of the old Q&A segments to listen to, because over on the UK Homebrewing Forum, there were some suggestions that it would be great to put together a show out of all of those. So we've grabbed a few that we thought were kind of interesting, and we're going to start doing them. This first segment here is going to have questions about Drew's philosophy of brewing on the ones about commercial brewers sharing recipes, BJCP versus GABF style guidelines, and about how the length of time you mash affects your beer. So let's get into that right now. It's time for Ask Denny and Drew, the part of the show where we try and see if we can come up with halfway decent answers to your questions. And Drew has the first one this episode. All right. First question comes from Tom Brennan, who uh, emailed us uh, to say, uh, first off, I'm a big fan of the podcast. We love fans. Thank you. Uh, I discovered it somewhere around episode four, or so I listened to it as I go around for my walks at five in the morning. Yeah, I'm that kind of guy. Well, while I appreciate the walks at five o'clock in the morning, I'm actually surprised that you don't consider this a safety hazard to be listening to us at five in the morning. But <laughs> uh, it says, uh, your talk on brewing on the ones totally changed my style of brewing. My entire process has become so much simpler that along with the, some tweaks in my brew house have helped my beers taste even better. Okay, now that I've buttered you up enough, I just want to see if you think this is a crazy enough idea to work. You do not have to give me feedback on this, but a simple yes or no would be fine. Well, too bad you're going to get a lot yes. of feedback. Uh, and it's a wheat <laughs> saison. Uh, 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 Tom uh, emails in a wheat saison recipe uh, for five gallons, 57% two row, 38% white wheat malt, 5% carrot, 20 for some color, uh, and then a half ounce of sriracha ace at 60 minutes and a half ounce of sriracha ace at five minutes with a pitch onto a previous dry yeast that he used. Uh, th uh, thanks, and keep up the good uh, good work. Oh, I guess Denny, too. All right, so... Ooh, the, ow, yeah. ow. Yeah, now you know why it's in here. It's Saison, and it digs at Denny. Yay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, all right, so uh, the question, uh, question seems to be about uh, whether or not I agree with the recipe formulation here. And, yeah, I totally do. The What your recipe is there, Tom, is not too far off. Uh, from my uh, saison printemps, 
uh, which is my wheat-based uh, saison that I do for this, uh, the springtime, oddly enough. Uh, and it's it's a heavily wheat-based recipe because I like that that flavor, and I like the lightness that goes up against it, and I think it also plays really, really well with American style hops like the Sriracha Ace, you know, the kind of, or I guess I shouldn't say American style hops, uh, modern newfangled fruit forward hops. How's that? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. My, my only concern with Sriracha Ace is always whether or not you get into lemon pledge territory, but that seems to be, uh, crop dependent. So my only change that I would say is I would probably still stick with my usual regime, which is a bittering dose of Magnum and then l- load in the flavoring hops later. But, I think you're going to be good enough and you'll have an awesome, awesome lightweight Saison that you can uh, guzzle down easily. So in a nutshell, then your answer would be yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the Swedish, Drew speaks Swedish. I didn't know that. So uh, Drew now has one where the guy sounds just a bit peeved. Yeah, this one uh, this one definitely comes under the category of uh, some uh, ranty, hatey type stuff, but it, it was an interesting enough conversation for us to have. I thought we should answer it. Uh, this one comes from Mr. H who emailed us and it says, uh, during the, uh, blank festival, uh, I talked with a representative from a local brewery about an interesting popular brew they had on tap. After I complimented him on the brew I was drinking, I told him I was brewing a similar beer. He immediately said, well, I'm not going to tell you what we put in ours. First off, go F yourself. I never asked. Uh, secondly, I'm a five gallon batch home brewer, not Slugworth. I brushed that off. And, Ooh. Yeah. Hey, Charlie and Chocolate Factory. I, I know, man. I love it. A Charlie and the Chocolate Factory re- uh, reference. I brushed that off and told him an ingredient I used, and he laughed at me. I'll tell you, we didn't use that in ours. All right, dude. I'm going to make your beer, but better just to, uh, to effing spite your ass using that particular ingredient. Who let this goon into the event, and why do some craft brewers act like this? Well, I can't talk to the specifics of this particular conversation that you had, except for it will, except for it's kind of a crappy conversation. I will say that uh, beer fests are not a lot of fun when you're on the craft brewer side of the, the table. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a hot, kind of just annoying job. You're a lot of times you're not being paid for uh, for your beer that you're being done. Uh, poured it's all oh hey look it's good exposure for you it's marketing dollars well yeah everybody um, else is there partying and you're working yeah so one i think that's going to tend to make people crabby to begin with plus it's usually your weekend but having said that uh yeah sometimes people are just bitch holes to reference our earlier <laughs> conversation and that definitely sounds like a bitch holy thing to say uh, coming from somebody, and I, I've known and I've met some craft brewers who are like this, who are, you know, sort of, uh, uh my recipes are proprietary. The, uh, you know, they, they, they contain my special magic. So I'm not telling you anything. And I also kind of feel like there's sometimes there's a little bit of a, a bass backwards way of trying to generate mystique about a particular beer. Um, I, Obviously, I'm not precious about recipes. I will put out recipes at the drop of a hat, so I don't care about it. But there are some people who are just going to be like that. So sometimes, yeah, you run into a craft brewer who is a dick, despite all the number of times that we can sit here and say, hey, you know what's the best policy in life? Don't be a dick. Uh, now, having said that at the same time, who knows? It could have been just a bad day. Guy had a long week. Yeah, you were the 20th person to come up and bug him about the beer that day. You know, whatever. 
there are lots of reasons that somebody's temper can uh, can fray, particularly over the course of pouring a beer festival. Uh, so, hey, I don't know. A lot of times the good thing is that this sort of thing that you're talking about seems to be a relative rarity in the craft beer world. So that's a nice thing. Uh, and yeah, let's just hope it stays that way. If you run into the occasional dick, just remember they're fighting their own battles and they may just be a dick. <laughs> really, man, maybe their dog puked on the carpet that morning. They got off to a bad start or something. But, um, my experience is that, uh, those are a minority of the brewers out there. I do a, a, a tour for a local brewery here. And uh, we have all the recipes for all the beers hanging on the info sheet on each fermenter. And when homebrewers come by, they take a look at them and I say, hey, if you guys want to take a picture of that so you can have the recipe, feel free. You know, uh, we don't care. We know you're not going to be putting us out of business. Uh, so, yeah, you're going to run into those people uh, who are like uh, like the letter here. But uh, just take heart in the fact that uh, most most brewers uh, are not going to be like that. A number of breweries even put their recipes on their websites. So, Okay, our final question today comes from Mike Hall via email. He wants to know, what's the difference between the BJCP style guidelines and the GABF style guidelines? I understand what each one stands for, but which one should I be using when creating recipes on my brewing software? Well, boy, there's like two... Uh, two intense questions there. I guess the first one is not quite so intense. Differences between BJCP and GABF is that the GABF has a much broader uh, set of style guidelines. Uh, I, I don't remember how many styles there are. Do you remember? It's like 80 or 90, something like that. It's 90, uh, uh, 96, but remember that uh, yeah. the GABF tends to focus on much broader top level categories because they're trying to spread out the number of metals the bjcp packs yeah bjcp actually packs more style uh, style categories into a smaller set of winnable metal categories yeah right but basically the gabf wants to make sure that uh, no commercial brewer is left out and uh, can't find a category to enter their beer into now down to the question of uh, which one should you be using um I would say, depending on your purpose, either one or neither. Um, if you are brewing a beer that you want to enter into a competition, we all know that in a competition, the purpose is to match the style guideline as closely as possible while minimizing any flaws in the beer, right? So if you're brewing a beer for a competition then you definitely want to be using the BJCP style guidelines. It's just that easy, you know. Um, if you're trying to recreate a commercial beer, then I would say you could use either one. Um, you know, and I would say that you don't really necessarily need to use either one because you'll know what the specs for the beer that you're trying to recreate are. You'll know approximately what the flavor is, uh, so you'll have an idea of of what to shoot for there. You know, and then there are those beers where they don't fit either one. Something like uh, Clam Chowder Saison, where you just get a wild hair to brew something, 
and it doesn't fit any known style guidelines, so you just kind of have to wing it and draw from your knowledge of other style guidelines, but not try to replicate them exactly. So uh, there's there's my rambling Zen answer to that. You got anything to add, Drew? Yeah, I would just say, remember that the guidelines themselves have radically different purposes, right? So the GABF guidelines tend to uh, go directly to where commercial beers are pouring currently because, hey, mm-hmm. you know, they got to get those metals out there. The BJCP seems to have a, a more solid interest in, is this an actual thing uh, before they go and create their guidelines? Uh I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy. I like I like style guidelines for the sort of, you know, hey, give me a general picture to paint. And I think the more of them that are out there, the better. But then again, I also maintain my own style guidelines for the Falcons. So big surprise there. Right. Uh, I think, but I think for most purposes, if you're trying to make a beer, for instance, if I'm trying to make an alt beer. I don't necessarily go and look at the GABF guidelines for different kinds of alts. I find that the BJCP guidelines are going to be getting me close enough that I can I can take it from there. Yeah, but at, at the same time, though, I mean, like, there are some things, for instance, where the BJCP doesn't have the guidelines, or they don't anymore, they used to, like malt liquor. Malt liquor is yeah, a valid style, and it, it's out there, but, you know, you can go and you can look at uh, the uh, GABF guidelines and right there is you know exactly what the specs on it should be and the description and everything else and the descriptions are also much much more lightweight than than what you find in the BJCP so you have to take that into account as well but they're yeah, they're, right. so, they're, uh, they're useful resources I just considered them additional uh, additional bullets of knowledge but if you're bre- if you're going to brew typically as a homebrewer and you're going to talk to other homebrewers about your beer they're going to mostly be versed in the BJCP world and not the JBF world. So Yeah, that's true. This first question comes from Russell in the UK, and it's for you, Denny, because it's a mash question. Alrighty. It says here, Hi, I've just listened to your one-year anniversary podcast. Really good. Say that again. Really oh, good. I love it. I know. <laughs> All right. This may be one of those questions that raises more questions rather than has an easy answer. Recently, I've been involved in a discussion about mashing for longer or shorter periods. It came up in multiple discussions of mashing overnight. I think that alpha and beta amylase convert starch to maltose and glucose in a ratio determined by the temperature of the mash. In my case, this conversion is over in 20 to 40 minutes, and testing with iodine after that time reveals no starch. So any further mashing serves no purpose and has no influence on the final beer. Others maintain that the enzymes are capable of converting the maltose into sucrose if left for a long time, resulting in a thin, alcoholic beer in extended mashes. Personally, I've never seen this extra conversion in longer mashes, but others maintain that this conversion does happen. Who's right? Russell. Well, Russell, um, it's kind of like everybody's right. Uh, but it, it kind of depends on how you want to define conversion. Yeah, you can convert starch to sugar in 20 to 40 minutes generally, especially with uh, the really highly modified malts that are around these days. But there's more to it than simply converting the starches to sugars. Um, the longer you mash, the more of the long-chain dextrins that are um, created by the beta amylase get broken down into short-chain dextrins by the alpha and make your wort more fermentable. Uh, this can go on 
for a long time, I definitely notice a difference in fermentability in my mashes between, say, 45 minutes and, and 90 minute mashes. Um, the whole idea of short mash times comes from commercial brewers who have said that they uh, only hold their mash rest for, say, maybe 20 minutes. And that's fine for them. But what you have to take into account is that on a large commercial system, it can take maybe half an hour to an hour to mash in and an hour to two hours or even more to uh, to louder out your mash. And you're in the temperature conversion range for pretty much all of that time. So even if you only hold your mash temperature for 20 minutes, you're still in the mash range for a whole heck of a lot longer. So, you know, yeah, you can convert starches to sugars in 20 to 40 minutes. But depending on exactly the kind of sugars you want, there can be benefits to doing a longer mash. Um, an overnight mash will not necessarily produce a thin alcoholic beer. A lot of that is determined by the recipe you use, which is uh, probably one of the best ways to determine body and final gravity, since mash temperature makes a, a whole lot less difference than it used to. Anything to add? No, I think you're pretty much right on. I've done some overnight mashing before just to test it out and see if I could save myself some time and increase my brew cycles. And I've never, I mean, I never noticed a difference, but now, of course, that's all anecdotal. And the plural of anecdota is not anadata. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Uh, no, I, I, I tend to think uh, we put a little too much emphasis on the effect of time and really what we're doing. I mean, I think even nowadays we're seeing that the vaunted selection of mash temperatures doesn't matter as much in the final, in the final taste of the beer as it does, as does the recipe composition and whether or not you're actually just getting to your conversion. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think that the people who are out there who are thinking that if they mash at 153 instead of 150, they'll make a a big difference. Uh, I think you're pretty much fooling yourself. Uh, use use your recipe to control that kind of thing. But having said all this, I do think Russell brings up a a, a good idea for an experiment. That uh, if we can convince some of our Igors to try the idea of doing an overnight mash uh, without the fears of having a sour mash happen, I think it might be worthwhile to just double check and see. Because I know for some people that if they could get away with splitting their brew days into an evening session for the mash and a morning session for the lauder and boil, that they could actually increase the amount of brews that they do. So that's not a bad idea to check it out and see. Oh, I, could, I could be on board with that one, man. I could, I'll go for anything that will uh, give me a chance to brew more often. No, back to the editing minds for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Stuck in the guest room with Pro Tools. There's the first segment. We're going to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. 
Okay, so in our second batch of questions, we actually go and we visit the idea of White Stout. I just like making Denny Twitch. White Stout, <laughs> pre-sanitizing kegs, some step mash uh, procedures, Belgians, and just exactly what's up with dry yeast in the salt can. Yeah. So sit back and go listen to some uh, questions. All right. Uh, this one comes from uh, Chris, who says... Hi, guys. I suppose this would be more of a question for Drew than Denny, given Denny's feelings on white stouts. Denny, do you have feelings about white stouts? Uh, my, my feelings on white stouts are uh, more sanguine than they used to be. Show me, uh, show me on the doll where the white stout touched you. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I had a question about flavor composition in a white stout I'd like to brew. My wife makes amazing blonde brownies, a.k.a. blondies. And I'm looking to attempt to capture some of the elements of this recipe into an upcoming brew. It shouldn't be too hard to do with a white slash blonde stout, but my concern is one of the main flavor components of blondies is butterscotch. Seeing that this is a common off flavor, should I just scrap this idea entirely? Or do you think I should attempt this anyway? I'm not brewing this for a competition, so I suppose it's fine regardless. But I was just curious of your thoughts on intentionally introducing a flavor that is considered an off flavor into this beer. Thanks, Chris. P.S. Butter is also a central component of Blondie's, but I don't even think I'm going to attempt incorporating that flavor. All right. So for my take on butterscotch, you're right that butterscotch is kind of usually considered to be an off flavor, you know, as a sign of uh, diacetyl, Mm -hmm. just like your butter flavor that you're worried about. However, remember that there are a lot of styles out there that include uh, diacetyl as an actual flavor component. It's part of the style. So if it's something that you're going for intentionally, uh, I actually don't think it's a bad idea. Although I would avoid going for straight, pure butterscotch flavor like a butterscotch extract, because I think if you do that, then you're going to come off very candy-like and more like you're trying to make a Harry Potter butterbeer clone. So I would tend to play more with the caramel aspects of butterscotch, uh, particularly if you're not going to try and back it up with that sort of buttery slickness. So my usual take on this sort of thing Again, just like with a white stout, I would go for oats, maybe go for the golden naked oats, because the golden naked oats carry a, a caramelly flavor to them, in addition to having all those all that oaty goodness. Uh, but yeah, I would I would focus on maybe some nice uh, toasted notes, some light caramels, so something like in the light Simpsons range. Uh, maybe even just do a C8 from Belgium, uh, what, the, what they call caramel pills, uh, not carapils. And then, yeah, use that to capture your butterscotch flavor. I would, depending upon how hard you want to drive it, I would also probably get my hands on some butterscotch extract. Uh, don't use like a, a Tarani syrup because those are way too sweet. Uh, and just do that. But try and go for more of that burnt caramel type thing. Get that sort of uh, toffee aspect and not the pure butterscotch. That would be my recommendation because I think that's a better fit. Yeah. It- for and flavor. I would say, don't be afraid of introducing a bit of diacetyl if uh, if you think that that's going to reinforce the flavor that you're going for. I mean, there there are many uh, German pilsners, uh, Czech pilsners that uh, that it, that's actually a, a bit of the style component. Uh, I've had a tendency to get diacetyl thrown from uh, Irish ale yeast, so you might want to experiment with something like that in there. Um, you know, yeah. I, you know, you, um, you're going for something that is kind of out there, so don't be afraid to try an out there technique to do it. 
Yeah, and speaking of out there, I can't believe these words are about to escape my mouth. This might actually be a instance where using Ringwood would be justified. Sure. Yeah, I was because Ringwood throws a fruity component, it throws some sweetness, and it throws some diacetyl. Ringwood's a little can be a little bit difficult to work with, and in, uh, in terms of keeping it roused and, and the aeration and stuff, uh, which is why I had suggested the the Irish ale yeast instead uh, get some of that same mm-hmm. character without quite as much hassle to it. Well, and the Irish ale use is going to be more subtle. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's definitely true. It's time for the part of the show that we call Ask Denny and Drew, where you ask and we try to answer. Uh, We have five questions today, and Drew, you get the first one here. Oh, boy. Yeah, the uh, first question comes from uh, David Beyer via email, who says, Hello, gentlemen. I like the question question mark. mark. Yeah. Yeah. On a recent podcast, Drew talked about how he cleaned his kegs, filled them with sanitizer, pushed the sanitizer out with CO2, and then set them aside for future use. I used to do something similar while also pushing it out through a cleaned beer draft line to sanitize that as well. That's actually a really good idea. Yeah. Uh, My buddy didn't agree with the idea of sanitizing after cleaning and then storing, but rather waiting right until right before use to sanitize. Uh, One of my friend's concerns stemmed from how plastic tubing gets all slimy when you leave it in star sand too long. And he was concerned about of even leaving residue in beer line tubing. At NHC in Baltimore, or Humbrucon, I went up to the five-star chemical booth and asked them about this. They said they always advise to just sanitize right before use. They said the little remnants of star sand can break down and become food for bugs. I don't recall if it was for wild yeast or bacteria or both. They said I should listen to my friend, and this also seems to fit with the common talking point that you shouldn't worry about a little bit of star sand in your beer because the yeast enjoys it. Perhaps this isn't an issue with Iota 4, but Drew also mentioned doing this technique with Sandy Clean, or maybe it's okay for kegs, but not beer line tubing. I'd like to hear your thoughts, and perhaps you could delve into it further with Five Star. Well, yeah, know what? I did. So I reached out to uh, Five Star, uh, thanks to John Palmer, and talked to John Hertzkowitz from uh, Five Star, and I asked him th- this exact question, and he-, he basically said, oh, no, no, your method is the recommended method for kegs. Uh, he says, I understand the misunderstanding that star sand or sandy clean could break down over time and provide uh, critter fuel. Uh, he didn't actually start using the word critter. I did. Uh, this assumes that there are critters in the keg. If you have cleaned and sanitized properly, then pressurized with CO2, there are no critters and there won't be critters until you introduce them. You have sanitized the keg and then emptied the keg with CO2. This will be stable and not allow something to magically grow inside. And when I kind of pushed him a little bit further to make sure I understood, because we have talked about uh, star sand before it becoming sort of yeast nutrient and bug fuel. What John said was when the pH solutions rise above 3.5, the solutions deactivated, and that's when it actually becomes a problem, uh, particularly when it's between uh, 4.5 to 6. Uh, that's when yeast are most active, and they'll feed off the micronutrients, and they'll actually pick up stuff out of the star sand solution, uh, basically the phosphate. Uh, and if you put wort on top of a fermenter that has it, then yeah, that's when it will, that's when it will take those up. But here, the CO2 is not only, not only is the keg sanitized, so there are no critters inside of it, but the CO2 actually will help keep the solution, uh, the pH solution down into the right range. So you don't really have to worry about it. Now that's different than the plastic beer line tubing because that's a chemical reaction. Uh, and any sort of, and plus, let's also face it, you're never going to completely sanitize plastic, at least not beer line tubing. Uh, so you're always going to have something in there. And so, yeah, in that particular case, I wouldn't store 
beer line with sanitizer in it. But in the kegs, we have the thumbs up from the folks at Five Star that you don't have to worry about it in this particular usage uh, scenario. And this is actually the way they prefer for people to store the kegs. Wow, that is really great info. And it sure is good to get like something firsthand like that, you know? Yeah, isn't it? So, and by the way, that uh, goes back to the point. This is the reason why we like to have your questions ahead of time, because if we can get your questions ahead of time, then I can do things like that. Yeah, right. So, uh, right. send those questions in. Uh, and I think you got the last question today, huh? Yeah, I do. This one came in our, via our Facebook page, Experimental Brewing, uh, from Jamie Wilton, uh, another another Englishman. It's an it's a UK day here in uh, Experimental Brewing. So it says here, uh, Jamie says. Hi, guys, from a cold and miserable northern England. He says, I've got a question for you on step mashing. I use a cool box mash tun, a.k.a. Denny's Cooler Special, and I want to make my first Belgian double. But everything I've read suggests that stepped mashing is essential to achieve an authentic Belgian result. What are your thoughts on this? Do you agree? That was my thought. Or do you... Th- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, do you agree... Or do you think that a single stage mash is fine? Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Jamie, for the question. And uh, we had a little bit of a discussion about this uh, previously, but no. I pretty much do all of my beers as single infusion, but that's also because I'm incredibly lazy. Uh, now, I do still do a low-temperature sack rest, even though I know we just poo-pooed the whole idea of like how much effect your mash temperature has on, on things. But I will actually uh, mash in around 148, 149 uh, for a lot of my Belgian beers, just on the off chance that it is giving me an increased amount of dryness and also to get more beta, beta amylase action. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't worry about it. If you look at the traditional Belgian schedules, they're absolutely barmy. Uh, multiple steps. I think the one that I know from Brasserie Vapour, which are the people who do Saison Pipe, uh, that's like four steps to get up to the main sacrification level, and then finally a fifth step to go to mash out. And ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, right. So I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but also at the same time, remember that if you're in a cooler, just because you're in a cooler doesn't mean that you can't do a step mash. Uh, whether you want to do boiling water infusions to pull your mash temperatures up or for, yeah, again, another chance where I'm going to say a word that nobody ever thinks come out of my mouth. Uh, you can also pull a decoction. I mean, this is exactly what decoctions were really made mm-hmm. for. Uh, you can pull a decoction, heat up that portion of the mash and throw it back in and heat up your, your overall mash done. And that's perfectly fine. So if you're absolutely obsessed with the idea of doing that, Go for it. Do that. Uh, but I don't necessarily think it's it's absolutely necessary. Uh, I've made plenty of doubles without uh, doing that. And uh, I'm really, in today's day and age, with the, all the character that we're getting from our malts, I don't think you need it. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, the, the, the big uh, catch is the word essential in there. No, it is in no way essential. Uh, you can certainly do it if you have the time and energy and curiosity to do it. Uh, but you can make a great, great double without having to go that route. I'm like Drew. Uh, I mash my Belgian beers at, uh, 148 for 90 to 120 minutes. Uh, I find that that gives me the, the kind of, of body and mouthfeel that I'm looking for. 
uh, and keep in mind, uh, in terms of drying them out, that uh, for a triple, you'll be adding sugar. For a, a double or a, a Belgian dark strong, you're going to be adding candy syrup in there, and that's going to help mm-hmm. dry it out also. So, uh, no, it's not essential. Do it if you feel like it. It's your beer. Do what you want to do. Wow. It's, Ramen. It's your beer. Do what you want to do. That could almost be a song, couldn't it? Let's not go there. Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm promising not to sing, but uh, that could be the next ukulele. I was, I was going to say, no, the problem is I sense ukulele in our future. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what funk ukulele would be like. We may find out. <laughs> the Isley Brothers as filtered by ukulele. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the questions, everybody. The yeah. Keep, keep those questions coming in. Uh, you know, we may have a good answer for them, and we may actually learn something trying to figure out what the answer is. So, uh. Yeah. All right. So now, uh, next question goes to you, Denny. This one comes from Jeff May of Clayton, North Carolina, via email. Jeff says, I often hear the statement that dry yeast packets typically contain 200 billion cells. I have seen this in many books and articles. However, the published analysis for many of the common dry yeasts available to home brewers contradict this information. The Danstar Lalleman site specifies living yeast cells greater than 5 times 10 to the 9th per gram of dry yeast on all of their brewing yeasts except for their diamond lager, which is listed as 7 times 10 to the 9th per gram of dry yeast, so even more in there. Each small packet has 11 grams, which would be 55 billion cells per packet of ale yeast, or 77 billion cells for lager yeast. The Fermetta site indicates viable cells at packaging greater than 6 times 10 to the 9th per gram for all their ale and lager yeast. Each packet is 11.5 grams, which yields 69 billion cells per packet. What am I missing? Well, Jeff, I don't think you're missing anything uh, other than maybe a lot of the uh, a lot of the references that you read that quote 200 billion cells are just wrong. Uh, I would certainly believe what the companies who manufacture and test these yeasts tell you. So base all your yeast use estimates on those figures and not 200 billion that you read from goofballs like us out on the internet. Yeah, I was going to say, homebrew authors and brewers are liars. Well, I don't know if they're liars, but uh, what we've seen oftentimes is uh, something gets repeated so often it becomes common knowledge, and then once it becomes common knowledge, people assume that it's correct. And Well, yeah, when the... When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. That's right, yeah. Um, and sometimes that stuff will be correct, and sometimes it won't be. So that's one reason we do things like go to the manufacturers, like Drew did with Starsan. That's why you went to the manufacturers of the yeast here, Jeff, because you wanted to get the straight facts. So I would say you're not missing anything. If anything, you're doing a great service to other homebrewers because you are now disseminating correct information. So thanks for the question. Thanks for the info. And uh, keep keep doing it. Okay, there's the next segment. We're going to take a quick break here, and we will be back with more Q&A. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company 
located in the Pacific Northwest, with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. segment we're going to answer questions about uh, aerating your wort while it's still in the kettle we're going to talk about the possibility of getting phenols from the hoses you use in your brewing as well as uh, what's the deal on diluting your wort post boil or post fermentation even and we're going to talk about what to do if your stove doesn't hold a steady temp when you're trying to steep so stick around and laugh at us our uh, next question comes from bill sarowski via email Bill says, I have a quick question, and I'm only asking because I really have not heard of anyone doing this, but I have a feeling many are. I just want to be sure. Ah, there's safety in numbers, huh, Bill? In trying to shorten my brew day up a bit, I was wondering why I couldn't aerate my wort while it was still in the brew kettle chilling with the immersion chiller. I use pure oxygen, and I understand that I should wait until the wort drops below 80 degrees Fahrenheit, according to something I recently read in BYO. I do not exactly have the beefiest chiller out there at this present time, so rather than add a step of aerating the wort after it's in the fermenter, why not combine two steps and do it while still in the kettle? Thank you, and keep up the great work. Cheers. Well, cheers back at you, Bill. And I'm on your side, buddy. I don't see any reason you can't do that. Um, there has been a lot of debunking. Uh, I hate to say actual debunking, but there, there's a lot less concern about hot side aeration than there used to be introducing your, introducing oxygen into your beer while it's still hot. Um, I, in spite of all that, I'm still, of the school that's paranoid and feels like uh, it's easy to avoid that situation. So why not do it just in case? Uh, when what Bill is talking about here, when he mentions the BYO article is the uh, commonly cited number of around uh, mid eighties Fahrenheit being the uh, limit below which you're pretty much safe from hot side aeration. So by aerating his word in the kettle at 80 degrees, I, I don't see any problem at all at all. It's possible that maybe you could do it at a higher temperature, but why take that chance? Uh, you know, you may be okay. You may find out that you have just proven that hot side aeration does exist to your beer's detriment. So at any rate, bottom line is, yeah, man, if you're going to wait for it to get down to 80 and then aerate in the kettle, go for it. If it works for you, not a problem. Yeah, see, I have one problem with that, yeah. and that's mostly 
Unless you're being super gentle with your transfer, I, I would worry that you're going to lose a fair amount of your oxygen when you rack into your kegs. Or, sorry, when you rack into your fermenters. So, yeah, you spend all this time and money to inject oxygen into the wort while it's in the kettle, and then rack over to your fermenters, and it comes out of solution. Yeah. Going into the air and being sort of semi-useless then. I mean, so it, that, it, that would be my worry. It could, uh, although you know, or, if, if when you not my worry, it, it would be my, it would be my point that I think you're not really actually saving yourself anything by doing it that way, and uh, and that might that might very well be the case. Uh, but on the other hand, I guess I was just addressing the part that I don't think you're going to hurt anything by doing it in the kettle at eighty degrees. Uh, the other thing is that you know if if you're racking carefully and like running tubing down to the bottom of your fermenter, then you're going to be fine. Uh, if you're pouring the wort from your mm. kettle into the fermenter, then yeah, you're or <laughs> the other way around. If you're pouring the wort from the kettle into the fermenter. Then obviously, yeah, you're going to knock a lot of that uh, that oxygen out of solution and maybe lose some of the effectiveness. So, uh, like, so, like, I said, I like think you're going to hurt anything, but you may kind of be at cross purposes with what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so it uh, sounds like we need a DO meter to do some experiments. <laughs> but hey, by the way, you you totally missed out on his postscript. He says. Uh, P.S. With my Thanksgiving meal, I will be drinking a robust cream ale fermented with white yeast 20, uh, 2112 California lager yeast. First time trying it and pleased with it. And either an experimental black pepper porter or an imperial stout for dessert. Nice. Then, black pepper cream porter. Ale. Oh, well, cream ale. And I, I, would think, uh, I would think for dessert, it's imperial stout for me. Unless yeah, you have a really uh, rich dessert, yeah. in which case the black pepper works. <laughs> yeah, black pepper porter could be really good. That kind of sounds interesting. Uh, All right. So uh, Brad Carlson uh, writes in and he says, I brew with RO water now, but before when I was using tap water, I was battling phenolic flavors in my pale beers. The beers tasted like pool water. Even after charcoal filtration and Camden tablets, I still had the problem. I finally gave up and went to RO, no issue since, but I did not give up on researching a cause. Finally, I had a thought. Maybe it's the garden hose. I'm stupid, and this thought never occurred to me before. Well, no, you're not stupid. A lot of people don't have that thought occur to them. Uh, after reading a number of forums, people seem to be split on the practice of using a garden hose. Do you think the garden hose flavor could make it into the final beer? And just to establish the ground rules here, I'm going to assume when you say garden hose, you mean yield classical green rubber hose with the black, uh, black interior green coating on the outside. And... Do I think it could make it into the final beer? Yes. Oh, sweet baby Jesus, yes. I have tasted a number of beers. So one of the things I do for my club is I do our Troubleshooters Corner, uh, where people bring beers that they want feedback on that are flawed or that they just really want uh, some reassurance on or direction on, and they'll bring them to me. And the number of beers I've had from relatively new brewers who all have uh, a very distinctive phenolic flavor that is exactly Garden Hose, uh, and have said, oh, yeah, no, I use the garden hose in my backyard to fill my kettle or whatever, is legion. So, do I think it can make it into the beer? Absolutely. Does it taste phenolic? Yes. Uh, and once you start to recognize it, it's a very distinctive flavor, which is the reason why I always recommend that if you're going to use any sort of hose for filling your, your kettles or for rinsing or anything else where it's going to possibly have water that ends up in the beer, 
either use vinyl tubing, like what you'd find, you know, for racking and whatnot, and just make a garden hose adapter for it, or buy yourself an RV potable water hose, the white hose, uh, and use those. I have two of those in my garage along with other tubing that I use. So totally, absolutely, garden hose is a thing. Uh, and boy, do I not like it. <laughs> yeah, well, if you think about it, I mean, you know, uh, chlorophenols are often related to band-aids which are plastic and you know and uh, and rubbery and that's the same thing that a typical garden hose has i have to admit that back many many years ago when i used a garden hose i don't remember any off flavors from it but i didn't use it for very long before i switched to the white rv hoses uh as a safety precaution so uh that's definitely what I would recommend also, man. Just uh, skip that hose completely. Go get yourself one of the white ones. Yeah, so Jason James contacted us on Facebook, and he said, uh, inspired by a Facebook conversation about uh, post-fermentation dilution in another homebrew group, uh, he asked us, is adding water post-fermentation a good idea? And have you heard of macrobreweries doing this? How does it affect heading, and how does it uh, affect pH? Uh, so, meanwhile... While we were discussing this in private, the Facebook thread that he was talking about kind of blew up and so into kind of a big thing. So we decided we'd cover it here on the show for a little bit. Uh, yeah, post fermentation dilution—it's totally a thing. It's totally a thing that the macrobreweries do. Budweiser is most famous for it with their uh, how they brew Budweiser and Bud Light. They brew what they call a chip beer. Okay, that's the beer that goes on the the chips in the tank, and it's a stronger. Uh, more potent version of Budweiser, but what they actually do is they brew at strength, so they have increased capacity coming out of the tanks. So, what do I mean by that? Well, it turns out big, empty stainless steel vessels are expensive. They take up room. They cost money to cool and control, and you're also talking about having to move more liquid around the brewery. So, what a lot of the macro breweries will do is they will brew a beer that, say, you know, a third, uh, a half stronger than what they intend to sell to the public. So that way they can squeeze more capacity, more alcohol in those tanks. And when they come out the other side, they dilute it just before they put it into the bottles or the cans. And so you can totally do this at home too. And the right way to do it is basically to have freshly boiled and cooled water and use that to add to your beer. The uh, reason for the freshly boiled and cooled is the biggest thing that you want to avoid is you want to avoid getting any oxygen into the final product, right? So we we talk about people obsessing over low oxygen methods and trying to figure out like, hey, how do you purge more oxygen out of the kegs? Uh, one of our experiments we're doing right now. So if you were just to add cold water to the keg and then rack your beer onto that to dilute down, you would actually be adding a hell of a lot of oxygen into the beer because there's a lot of oxygen entrained in regular water. So what we do is we boil. The boil drives off the oxygen. Cool, you cool it, preferably in something yeah, cool like a cool it cover for sure so it doesn't uh, intake oxygen again. Yeah, yeah. so I, I do it when, when I do it, I'll cover in a keg, and then I'll just then rack into that. And the calculations are very simple. There's a, a simple dilution calculation. It's basically take your... Uh, Take the amount of alcohol that you have in your beer right now, multiply it by the volume that you have, and then divide it by the new volume that with the water that you're adding. So that way, because water adds no alcohol, so it's really you're averaging out how much alcohol is 
going into the water solution. And yeah, I'll just rack into the keg, seal it up, put some pressure on it, and then I'll give it a couple of uh, nice gentle shakes, and then I'll go and I'll really push the gas on it, and I'll do my carbonation method. Yeah, it's it's pretty easy. Uh, um, the the original conversation, people were saying, well, this is cheating, and it's like, <laughs> cheating? Come on. Who says it's cheating? Um, you, you do have to know in advance that you're going to be doing this and take that into account in your recipe formulation. But other than that, it is simply just a different way of making a recipe. So, you know, do it if you need to. Do it if you want to. It's fine. It's not cheating. It's easy. And, uh, you know, if you're limited on fermenter space, it can be a big help. Yeah, and uh, the other thing I do with it is, so I have a zymatic at home, and I'll take and I'll make a as strong of a batch of beer as I can make in a zymatic at two and a half gallons, and then I'll dilute it down when I go into the keg. So I've done this multiple times where I make essentially a strong brown ale in the zymatic, and then I dilute it into the keg, and I bump the volume all the way up to five gallons, and I end up with a really tasty yeah, model. easy to do. So the next question comes to us via Facebook from Chris Tate. He says, Hey guys, just want to start off by saying that I love the podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. I like how you both have a carefree, but still hardcore approach to brewing. Yeah. Well, it happens. Yeah. I'm more carefree. Um, I do have a quick question though. We're brewing our ninth batch of beer on the stove with a partial boil extract batch. Our electric stove is horribly inconsistent in maintaining temps. And because of that, I worry about steeping the specialty grains. How much do I need to worry about tannins and hitting my gravity when the majority of sugars come from the LME? I am dealing with temp swings of about 10 degrees. Thanks for putting out such a fun and informative podcast and keep it up. You guys rock. As for the beer, there were about three pounds of grains, two gallons of water per the recipe. There are an additional nine pounds of golden light LME. The hottest the water got to was 168. The recipe calls for 154. Based on what you said, and this is after I'd given him a quick answer, uh, I doubt there is much to worry about as it stayed below 170. I will taste the wort once our boil is done and see how it tastes. If there are tannins, is there any way to clean them up? I've done a starter using one liter of 1040 wort that I renewed each night since Thursday, and I'll be pitching a one liter slurry. So will the yeast be able to clean any potential tannins up? Uh, we'll just start with that last part first because it's real quick. Uh, the answer is no, uh, that doesn't happen. There are ways of uh, fining your beer with various substances uh, post-fermentation that maybe can help drop out some tannins, but uh, it's nothing I've ever done very much or worried about. Okay, let's get back to the core of the matter here. Number one, as we've said many times before, while heat can exacerbate tannin extraction, the main culprit to uh, have undesirable tannins extracted is the pH of your wort, water, whatever you're steeping your grains in. So let's take a look at that. You use three pounds of grain, two gallons of water. Grain has a natural tendency to pull down the pH of the water. And, uh, I, you know, for many years, I brewed beers without any uh, regard to pH whatsoever. And uh, going on the theory that I read in some book someplace that uh, if you have even a pound of Crystal 60 in your recipe, that's going to put the pH right for you. 
I don't know if that's exactly true, but the basic theory works. So three pounds of grain in two gallons of water, you should end up with a pH that's in the ballpark, at least for steeping. Okay, those temperature swings. You were shooting for uh, 154, you got up to 168. No big deal. If this was an all-grain beer, you might end up with a little bit more body or something. Uh, my guess is that in an extract beer, you will hardly even notice the difference. So the real answer to uh, Chris's question here is you're cool, man. You're good to go. Um, there's a very good chance that your pH was in line and you extracted no tannins. And that temp swing certainly didn't uh, do you any serious damage. So go forth, ferment the beer, drink it, and enjoy. That's what we're all here for, right? Indeed. And yeah, I agree. I think until you're getting into really wackadoodle pH swings, uh, which really you're not going to see in in the case of the steeping here. Yep, I think absolutely. All right. There's another bunch of questions that hopefully we've given you some good answers to. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll have our last segment. And so for our last segment of questions, we're going to tackle some things about, well, just what do you substitute out for crystal malt? The, uh, my whole thing about Sammy Claus and how you actually do it. Whether or not you can get uh, lead from your faucets, uh, ingredients to help with your foam, and, well, what do you do with flakes and cereal mashing? So, sit back, and last batch of questions before we get on to our something other than beer and get you on your merry, merry way. Next question is from Mike from Maine via email. Mike writes, gents, great job with the podcast. Why, thank you, Mike. Denny's ukulele chorus is often stuck in my head, and I just want to apologize for that right now. Uh, though I replace the beer, 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 beer with bacon and other words. Well, that's kind of an interesting idea. I learned of experimental brewing by listening to Brad Smith's podcast a couple of months ago. I've listened to all 138 of his episodes, and I'm about a third of the way through the experimental brewing series. I've made four all-grain batches so far and would like to try a barley wine. I found the AHA recipe for Sierra Nevada's Bigfoot barley wine. However, it calls for English Crystal 105 Levabond, and my homebrew shop here in New Hampshire only carries 15, 40, 60, 75, and 120. Nobody I know has even heard of 105. Any advice on what I should substitute the 105 with? I thought about using half 75 and half 120, but I'm not sure if that's the best way to go. There's a good chance that I'm worrying too much about it, since I'm sure I'll drink it regardless of what I mm -hmm. use. Thanks for the advice, Mike from Maine. Well, Mike, yes, you are worrying too much about it. It's beer, for goodness sakes. Don't worry about it. Enjoy it. Okay, so I would say in that situation, I would either just replace all the 105 with uh, 75, or maybe all 75, and maybe a, a couple ounces of the 120. 
the thing about uh, trying to blend crystal malts together to make a particular color is that uh, you may get the color right, but you're not going to get the flavor right. 120 has a very distinctive flavor to it that uh, isn't going to be at all like 105. And there's a, a couple other things in here that go along with the don't worry about it theory. Number one, having a recipe for a beer is, as far as I'm concerned, only about 10% of what it takes to replicating that beer. Your process is equally important. So, um, you know, putting 75 in there is not going to get you any further off necessarily than if you had the 105 and uh, your technique was different than Sierra Nevada's. The other thing to take in, into account is that any particular color of crystal malt is a blend of crystal malts of varying color. For instance, you look at a handful of Crystal 60, and you're going to see some real dark kernels in there, some real light-colored kernels in there, some kind of medium-colored kernels in there. It's an average based on uh, the color of all the different uh, kernels going into it. So, in that regard, close enough is good enough. Uh, so, my advice is if 75 is as close as you can get, if you think you want it darker, put in a couple ounces of 120 also, and then enjoy your beer, man, uh, because you made it and it's going to be great. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, that a barley wine already has so much going on in it that missing out the crystal on a couple points is not going to really affect you much. I'll double up on Danny's point about the crystal malts are already a blend. That's the reason why when you look at them, you'll see a lot of darker grains and some lighter grains. Uh, at, regarding the 105, just off the, the top of my head and doing a little research, the closest that I can think about it, if you're obsessed with the idea that you have to get to 105, is basically uh, Simpson's Crystal Dark. Uh, it's a British crystal. Uh, it runs, they say, somewhere between 95 to 107 level bond. And uh, Fawcett, uh, Thomas Fawcett, also has a malt uh, called Dark Crystal that runs just a hair darker, uh, starting at 110. So I would I would say if you're gonna if you're gonna be obsessive about it and want to get it dead on right, look for that Simpsons. It's also a yeah, it is. But remember, you're not gonna get it dead on right, no matter what you do. You're gonna make a beer that is very much like Bigfoot. You're not going to make Bigfoot exactly because. Only Sierra Nevada can do that. So, All right. So our last question for the day comes from Jamie Walton uh, from the UK, who contacted us via Facebook. Says, I was just listening to the new show in the car today and was wondering about the Maltos Falcon Sammy Claus style recipe. I guess the newest version, 2001, is the best version. I was led to believe that the only hops used were Challenger. I'll use the S189 yeast, as my chances of getting a WLP885 in the UK are slim to zero. How many packs would you use in a gravity that big? I wondered about one pack per gallon. What do you reckon? So, yeah, Jamie, the, the recipe from 2001 is the last one that we did. We were actually getting ready to brew uh, the new version this weekend, but uh, things have come up. So we're going to brew it uh, next month in January. And the new version is much more in line with what you'd actually expect from Sammy Claus. So I don't know if Sammy Claus actually used Challenger for the, all of its run, but we are tending to focus on sort of neutral bittering hops. So we're redoing the recipe this year and simplifying the living bejesus out of it. 
So it's going to be roughly about 50-50 pills and Munich with a touch of Carafatu in it to kind of boost the color. Uh, the bittering will be very much in line with sort of my modern take on it, which is all Magnum, and then Hollow Tower for some character. And for the yeast, I would say for a five-gallon batch with this sort of gravity, and remember for listeners who don't have the recipe in your head, this beer starts at 1.140 original gravity. So it's a tiny bit big. And... What I would say is for the size batch that uh, Jamie is talking about doing, I would actually say that if you did three packs of the S189 properly rehydrated, uh, you'll be fine. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, I, this I think takes so a lot too, of yeast. Although uh, throwing in a fourth just to be sure certainly couldn't make any difference. Although I'm not much of a guy to rehydrate dry yeast, when you're abusing it like this, I certainly would. Yeah, I mean. And yes, this is this is real abuse. I would also recommend from our past experience that you have some other variety of yeast on hand to maybe help finish this along. I would also suggest doing multiple oxygenation steps. So when we've done this in the past, we had the best success using a full yeast cake from a p- previous starter batch that I made, pitching the cake, oxygenating at the time of pitch, and then oxygenating for about the first... 36 hours post-pitch uh, every 12 right. hours, don't, just to give it a little extra yeah, goose. Don't go much longer than that, because uh, one thing you want to avoid is oxygenating uh, when fermentation is wrapped up. That is that is not a good way to make beer. Yeah. So, good luck, Jamie, with the project. I'll let you guys know how we're doing with the project. And, oh, uh, yeah, another tip. Uh, floor sherry actually works pretty well as a finishing yeast, although you'll definitely get sherry notes. But not in this particular thing. beer, no, not at not all, man. Okay, this one comes from Andrew Brown of Fargo, North Dakota. He says, first, great job with the podcasts. Thank you very much, Andrew. We appreciate hearing that. You've kept me company through many outdoor projects, staining a fence and now moving mountains of snow. My brew year's resolution is to finally get heat and water into my garage. In the past, I've tried to work around the freezing North Dakota temperatures so that I could brew on any day, not just a day when the outdoor temperature was above freezing, which is not that easy in North Dakota. Anyway, I've got a garage heater now and most of the insulation installed, but the water is causing me some confusion. I'm not going to trust that the garage always stays above freezing, so I'm planning to put a frost-proof outdoor faucet in the garage, standard building practice here in North Dakota. But I've noticed that all the outdoor faucets at the hardware store are labeled for irrigation use only, not for potable water. I found that they contain lead, and the CDC and other medical groups maintain that there is no safe level of lead consumption. I've found a lead-free, frost-proof faucet from Prayer. Their 400 series faucet comes in a lead-free version and is available on Amazon. My question is whether it's a big deal or if I'm just overly concerned. There really isn't a big price difference between the two versions, so I'm going to go with the lead-free version. But I couldn't find any information on this on the forums. There seems to be concern about regular garden hoses causing off flavors, but nothing on lead. Thanks for all you guys do to support the brewing community. Okay, Andrew, Betty, here's my take on things. Uh, lead is definitely a good thing to avoid. 
So especially since the price of the two faucets is about the same, definitely, definitely, definitely get the lead-free faucet. Most faucets that contain lead contain a very, very minute amount that is used to uh, aid in the machining of the of the parts. Um, and there's a, a way you can remove it by pickling the parts using a combination of uh, vinegar and water. Is that right? Is that what it is? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weak acid solution, basically. Yeah, exactly. And and that will remove the lead. Um, and uh, it's, uh, as far as I know, very effective because there's so little lead there. Although I don't know what the lead content of the faucet you're starting with is. So I would say, in general, you always want to avoid lead. If buying lead-free is the way to do that, uh, then do it because that's easy. Uh, I have a few brass parts where I have used the pickling method to remove the lead from them. And as far as I know, I'm not dead yet, so I guess it's effective. And uh, one last little thing here about hoses. Yeah, um, I think that the main problem with using a regular garden hose is the off flavors you get from it uh, more than uh, the what it's made of. But uh, definitely, I would recommend using one of the uh, white RV hoses for your brewing water. Uh, it can make a, a big difference, and uh, they're not that expensive anyway. So, Any follow-up there, Drew? Yeah, I was going to say, one, homebrewers have been using brass uh, faucets on their kettles and whatnot for years, until suddenly there was a flood of stainless steel parts on the market, so... I mean, even my old first brewing kettle, the faucet coming out of it is a three-eighths inch butterfly brass valve. And I used that for years with seemingly very few side effects. Now, however, having said that, uh, maybe this explains some of the badness in the homebrewing community. (laughs) But also, I did did want to put out there, uh, since Denny and I are not uh, really cold weather people, Denny is much more a cold weather person than I am where he's brewing. I reached out to Tom Roan, who is also in Fargo, North Dakota, and uh, was the one who brought me up to the Hoppy Halloween competition this past uh, Halloween. And he said uh, his take on it was, yeah, go for the the lead-free parts, because really that's what you want to do, because it's not much of a difference. He also backs up the RV hose. But he did also point out one other concern, and it's a good one for us to mention here, since we're talking about brewing in a garage, brewing in sort of a tightly insulated space. He says, uh, aside from that, it sounds like you have a great setup in the works. Do be careful about carbon monoxide levels, as it sounds like you will have it sealed up pretty tight. Uh, And that's a very good point. Remember, our propane burners that we love to use generate a lot of carbon monoxide. So uh, you have to make sure that you are somehow venting and exchanging air. Otherwise, that could lead to a very bad situation on your brew day. And definitely get a carbon monoxide meter. Uh, my, my garage is not tightly sealed at all, but uh, I still put a carbon monoxide meter in. It is one of the very first uh, steps when I started brewing out there. Uh, you can find one for between 25 and 50 bucks, And believe me, uh, your life is worth that much. I was going to say, here in California, I don't even think about it because here in California, we're required to have them. Yeah, right. So I I have three here. I have one in my back house. I have one in the, in the garage slash brewery, and I have one in the main house. So 
Yeah, they're cheap insurance. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't have any any uh, gas going on anywhere, so I don't really need one other than in the garage. So I just uh, I picked one up at my local home improvement store, plugged it in uh, once a month. I run the test cycle on it to make sure it's still okay, and uh, it, it's only gone off once, and that was when I had like uh, five people all brewing in my garage. So <laughs> it was pretty insane in there, anyway. This is where I prove that uh, my French is no better than my Dutch or even my English. This question comes from Mark Antoine Beaupre via email, and he says, Hey guys, I was wondering if you were willing to answer one little question coming from Montreal. And then he asks a big question. What are your recommendations concerning the ingredients improving foam and head retention? I've been putting 5% flaked wheat into my all-grain beers for the last couple batches. It seems to work fine, but I wanted to have the input of two pros. Uh, hang on. Wait, where are the pros? I, I was going to say, hang on a second. I'll go see if I can find some. I also wish to tell you how much I appreciate your work. Your books and podcasts are literally gold to homebrewers. Oh, Mark Antoine. Thank you, man. Cheers from Canada. Thanks a lot. Well, darn, you said such nice things. I guess we're going to have to try and come up with a good answer to this, huh? So let me start by citing the age-old example here, which is Duval. If you've ever had a Duval, you know that that beer has the kind of foam and head retention that a home brewer would just kill to have in their beers. And there's nothing in that beer other than Pills malt and sugar. There's no wheat, there's no carapils, there's none of the stuff that people traditionally add to try and increase beer foam. The re- yeah, but there's tetra hop extract. Well, yes. Which is incredible which is incredibly foam positive. Yeah, right, and that's that's what I was getting at. Um it's your brewing practices and especially fermentation and uh that will get you the foam that you're looking for. And I always refer back to a great Brewer Own article written by Chris Colby, and we will post a link to that on the website because it, uh, it's something that everybody should read. And he talks about uh, developing foam-positive elements in your beer, how to keep them in your beer. He has some tests that you can do on your beer that might help you pinpoint your problems if you're having a problem. But to me, the biggest point that he makes is that if you're not having problems, things like wheat or carapils, yes, might actually help your foam. They might not, but they might. But if you're having some of the problems that he details in this article, you can add a whole bunch of this other stuff, and it won't really help anything. So... His keys are to use proper brewing procedures, uh, pitch plenty of healthy yeast, keep the fermentation temp under control, and that alone will uh, bring a, a lot of foam-positive character to your beer. So rather than me just kind of like reading that article to you right now, we will post a link to it. Read it for yourself. And Mark, uh, your answer will be in that article because... I want you to do some of those tests and find out where your foam problems are or aren't, and then you'll know if adding any of those ingredients might make things better for you. Yeah, and I'll just say, to my mind, I don't think I've ever really noticed the vaunted wheat impact. 
I've had some of my wheat beers have had lousy head, and some of my non-weeded beers have had fantastic heads. And I suspect there's a lot more going on there. Yeah, you know, and when I developed my rye IPA recipe uh, many, many years ago, I added both carapils and wheat to it for their supposed foam-positive properties. And I have to tell you that I've made that beer a few times when I didn't have any wheat or carapils around. And there's like pretty much no difference. So, um, you know, don't think that those will necessarily solve your problem if you have a problem. Get to the root of the problem and take care of that first. And then using things like wheat or carapils or other uh, high protein uh, ingredients uh, might help your foam. Well, it's time for the part of the show where we see if we can come up with good answers or just answers. Well, we've got a bunch of your questions here, and we're going to try and answer them for you. So, Drew, you got the first one. I do? Oh. Now suddenly I need the yeah. uh, Jeopardy think music in the background. Do, 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 <laughs> do, 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 do. You didn't know that had a name, did you? I did. <laughs> no, right. I didn't. So the but first you would. Uh, of course I would. I play Jeopardy every day on my uh, my Echo. All right. Uh, Vince Catlow writes in from Facebook. He says, Hi, I heard the show on New England-style beers, and I have a question. Should I do a cereal mash on the flaked oats prior to my mash, or should I just throw them all in with my base malt? Thanks for the brew day inspiration. Well, one, you're welcome. And two, no. No, no need for a cereal mash with flaked oats. In fact, I would say there's no need for a cereal mash with any sort of oat, with the exception, possibly, of the oat berries slash groats. And really, even then, it's not a cereal mash in the traditional way. It's just that you want the, the grain to be fully hydrated. If you go and you look at the website, a couple uh, months back now, I think, I did a quick and dirty science segment. And it was all about showing, okay, do f- steel-cut oats have to be pre-cooked before they go into the mash? And it turns out the answer is no. So if steel-cut oats can make it, flaked oats definitely will make it. So no worries there. Go and just dump them right in. Yep. And uh, a little uh, addendum to that, uh, just because I've seen the question come up on Facebook a couple times recently. No, you do not need to crush flaked grains. As a matter of fact, it's probably better if you don't. They can uh, potentially just gum up your whole mash if they're crushed. There's no need for them to be crushed. So just toss them into the mash there and go for it. Yeah, and when I did the science experiment, I also had you know steel-cut oats and flaked oats. And then I can't remember if I had in the results or not, but I also did a small portion of instant oats. And the only difference is really right. instant oats are just the steel-cut oats just chopped up even further, which would be effectively what you're doing with your mill. And boy, those were not as fun. Yeah, yeah. Don't do it. You're wasting your time, and you might be uh, creating troubles for yourself. I think we did reasonably well on most of those. I'll take it. Yeah, right. You know what? And uh, what can I say? We've already said it now, and uh, hopefully we don't have to correct ourselves too many more times. We're going to move on, and Drew has something other than beer for us this week. And, of course, in the something other than beer, Denny has uh, promised that he's going to strictly time me here and keep me under 60 seconds. My very first movie memory is going to watch Star Wars in 1978, sorry, actually 1979, when it was released in the drive-thru again prior to the release of Empire Strikes Back. So, naturally, this week, I went to go see The Last Jedi, and, yeah, shut up. Go watch the movie. It's awesome. There you go. I made it under a minute. Hey, hey, that's all he had to say. Man, I was way under a minute. 
Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, all the theaters that are showing it around here are in shopping malls, so I'm not going to venture out until after Christmas. But I intend to see it as soon as I possibly can, because all the reviews just make it sound great. And I hear that... Uh, between the fact that there are so many nude scenes and that all the dialogue is done as a rap, that it's a, a really different take on Star Wars. They're taking a lesson from Hamilton. But no, seriously, I would say it's the second best Star Wars movie, only behind my favorite, which is Empire. And of course, it has a lot of echoes of Empire and has the same sort of elegiac feel to it that Empire does in a lot of ways. Elegiac feel. Boy, I'll tell you, you got some good words today. I try. all right everybody thank you for listening to our christmas edition of experimental brewing you can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website which is experimentalbrew.com don't forget to follow us on twitter where we're at exp brewing we're on facebook or on instagram I'm on a bunch of different beer forums, including the AHA discussion forum. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and on the Slack homebrew channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or a charity or recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com. He's Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. And hey, don't, and don't forget, you know, we've got the Q&A show, the all Q&A show, brand new Q&A coming up on February 14th. We need your questions. But even more importantly, even quicker than that, well... It's the Brewers. We need your Brewers resolutions, people. And I'll tell you what, I'm gonna I'm gonna sweeten the pot. Whoever gives their favorite, my favorite Brewers resolution, Denny doesn't get a vote in this one. Whoever <laughs> gives my favorite Brewers resolution via the podcast at experimentalbrew.com email or our Facebook page will win a can of one of my saisons, canned by me, shipped straight to you. Wow. Wow, except it won't be shipped because that's illegal, so Drew will just drive it to your house. There you go. Yeah, right. So, until next time, remember to have yourself a great holiday season and to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky and drink heavily to deal with your family. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.